This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, October 30th, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Well, if you have your Bibles, if you'd open up to Genesis chapter 29, and a quick question for you, ever just have one of those days? And you even know, you know what I mean. That's been one of those Sundays for me, and I'm guessing that um, someone doesn't want someone to hear what God wants to say today. So that's the only thing I can figure. Um, so I'm excited to see what happens because it has been the worst Sunday up to this point I can remember in a long time. So praise Jesus that uh, He's still on the throne. And if He comes back right now, that'd be awesome. So Genesis 29 is where we're going to spend our time today. I'm going to read the whole stinking thing. So beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and the water of the sheep, put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We're from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it's it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, well, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well and then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. And Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah, his daughter Leah, to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what did you do? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. So complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other also. In return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant, so Jacob went 
into Rachel also and loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name shall be called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. This is God's Word. For those who are in Christ, do you remember the first time you learned about the love of God in Christ? Do you remember when the truth about Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection became more than myth, more than than mystery, but it became real to you? Nothing is ever the same after that genuine meeting of Jesus. Everything changes. Your your desires are different. Your perspective is different. Your expectations are different. And even though the Bible says that faith in Christ comes at what the Bible says is a new birth, starts in a moment, we know that new life in Christ matures and grows over many Many, many years. According to Romans 8.29, God's goal for us is to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. In other words, to look, and I would say to love like Jesus. That's His goal. That's what He's aimed at doing. And even though nothing has to change for us to be loved in and by Christ, there is actually much that must change for us to love like Christ. Now for Jacob, his we'll call sanctifying journey will take at least 21 years. It's not overnight. And Jacob's experience at Bethel, which we read about a couple weeks ago in the previous chapter, was the beginning of this faith journey for him. The place where God committed to him to complete the task that he had started with his grandfather and his father and now would fulfill in him. What had begun as this glorious vision of a stairway to heaven is going to be followed by what probably feels like a roadway through hell. And quite honestly, it's probably a familiar story for a lot of us here as we came to know Christ. Things started awesome and then they got really hard. But perhaps he looked at it differently. Jacob's journey, though maybe difficult, is not one of punishment. It's one of discipline. Those aren't the same. The writer of um, Hebrews reminds us that God disciplines those He loves like a good father who wants our good. And He doesn't just discipline us when we do bad. He guides us and leads us and shapes us. And again, as the writer of Hebrews says that For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But he says later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, 
Look at Jacob having become a master at loving himself, which we've all got PhDs in that. Okay? He is really good at loving himself. He has demonstrated how, how masterful he is at this skill. God is now going to teach Jacob how to love others like he loves us. But that's a painful lesson. Now, God being God, he never draws us onto the path of refining fire by showing us the coals and the flames and the smoke. So unless your name is Tony Robbins, few of us are willingly going to take that walk down the hot coals and go, that looks fantastic, let's do it, right? God has much more powerful and effective ways to motivate us to walk down paths And in the case of Jacob, it's good old-fashioned romantic love. He puts a beautiful worm out there and just goes, hooks him on. The dream of Bethel though, right? When he had this dream, it totally changed his outlook. He came to Bethel hopeless and, and pretty down and despairing. Who, you know, I don't know if no God even likes me anymore. But now he is different. God's promised to go with him. God's promise to love him. God's promise to bring him back. And so it says he's journeyed, which literally is it lifted his step. He's like, whew, let's go 500 miles to Haran, right? All by himself, on this journey, he has now great hope where he had great fear. And he's on a mission. Find me a wife. That's why he's going. After months of traveling, he arrives outside of his mother's hometown of Haran. It's about noonish, and a few flocks have started to gather around what the Bible says is a big well with a large stone on it. And Jacob confirms, hey, you guys uh, from Haran? Yeah, we are from Haran. Hey, you know Laban, my uncle? Yeah, we know Laban. In fact, here comes his daughter, Rachel, the shepherdess. And it's interesting, Jacob is so funny. We read through this and we don't see what's going on. But Rachel's coming and Jacob gets excited. And he has some interesting words for the, for the shepherds. He's like, hey guys, hey guys, um, so this isn't really the time to be watering your sheep. It's still like, it's, it's midday. Get your sheep out in the flocks. You know, get them out in the pasture. He's like, uh, no, we got to water the sheep. Like, he wants to be alone, right? Go on, go on guys, get out of here. She's coming, Right? And as he's talking, she arrives. And what does he do? You notice in the very beginning it said it took several shepherds to lift the stone. And Jacob in his feats of strength, right, was like, oh, hello, Rachel. Just lifts the stone off himself and starts to water her flock. He's already in impress mode. I want to show this girl who I have just seen that I am studly. He did exactly, interestingly enough, what his mother did when um, Isaac's servant came looking for um, a wife for her son. His mom, Rachel, um, also did that. I'm sorry, Rebecca. Always had to be ours. So he waters the flock and he kisses Rachel and he hugs her, which is not romantic, it's very cultural, and he's weeping. And he goes, I am the son of your aunt. Your dad's my uncle. And she's like, 
And she runs, right? She runs to find dad. And Laban's excited. He comes and he's like, oh yeah! And he's hugging him and he's kissing him. And there's lots of reasons for Laban to be excited. The fact that he has a daughter as a shepherdess implies that he has no sons and he has no son-in-laws. Now there's a boy in the house. Help out a little bit. Maybe marry him off to my daughters, right? He's excited for lots of reasons. So he hugs him, kisses him. You've got to stay with us. And although Jacob does reveal who he is, he doesn't reveal at that moment what he's feeling because he's got his eyes on Rachel. And it's love at first sight. If there's any picture of love at first sight, it's right here. Whether you believe in that or not, I mean, he's smitten. He is head over heels. He is captivated by Rachel. Rachel, And he is going to have to work for her love. So he's invited to stay. And after a month, Laban comes to him. So he's been with him a month, the Scriptures say. And he says, look, you, should you, just, you shouldn't be serving me for free just because you're family. Name your wages. So he wants him to stay. The implication is he's been, he's been working. He has not a vacation for him. He's been functioning as an active member of the family, doing chores and responsibilities, perhaps for the first time in his whole life. But he is motivated by something deep. He is already thinking, processing. I just want to be close to this girl. Oh, I'll help with the sheep. I'll help with the chores. I'll help whatever. This once soft mama's boy has become a hunter like Esau. And he has found his prey. He's like, I'm going to get that dough. And he'll do whatever it takes. And so he makes a proposal. He's like, hey, don't pay me a dime. Don't pay me a dime. But I'll serve you for seven years if you let me marry your youngest daughter, Rachel. And typically, um, when his mother, Rebecca, was married off, um, the servants came with, with great um, uh, wealth and presents and gifts and all kinds of things because there was a dowry. A dowry would be paid for the bride. It was kind of like a trust fund that would be um, set aside in case the husband died or in case he deserted her or divorced her. They'd be like, okay, we get this pile of money. Um, So Jacob doesn't have a penny to his name yet. And the normal bride price uh, at that time would probably have been like 30 to 40 shekels. And and Jacob is offering because of the years and the amount of wages per year of like almost twice that. So he's offering a lot in terms of what it would play out to. He is, he is committed to working hard. He can say, hey, I'll work for you for a year. And he makes a very significant offer. I will do this huge task for your daughter. So first of all, pay attention, young ladies. And any young men who won't have a chance at my daughter. Okay? But young ladies, that boy wants to remain a boy and he doesn't want to work for your heart like that. I ain't saying it's got to be seven years, but it's got to be significant. Ain't worth it. Walk away. And boy, don't even try to date my daughter (laughs) until she's like 45. (laughs) Then we can discuss what's going to happen. Just kidding, Emmy. 
I've got two daughters, actually. But what we see is this, is is I firmly believe, and this isn't a a perfect picture of it, but I do believe that, that love is not something you fall into or fall out of. It's not something that just happens. Certainly attraction could be described that way, but love is not something that just happens. It's not something that's out of our control. Love, particularly what we are going to see here, the the covenant love of marriage is something you work for. And you never stop working for. Now Laban has two daughters, as we see here, and they both want to be married. A simple reading of the text can make it seem like Rachel is a beauty queen and Leah is this ugly, hideous monster of some kind. And while they are likely both beautiful, they're both probably very different. It says Leah's eyes are weak, which is an interesting phrase. Um, We don't use that much today. Um, It really is talking about, if you look in the Jewish text, they talk about um, uh, they were weak from tears that she was probably very emotional. Um, She was perhaps much gentler and delicate than Rachel the shepherdess, right? Um, She was um, beautiful probably, or or Rachel was probably a little more attractive, but there was a deep level of attraction that was different that Jacob was um, attracted to. It's interesting in many ways, um, Leah and Rachel are kind of like Jacob and Esau. And you see that Jacob is attracted to his opposite. He's attracted to who you think Esau would like, the huntress, right? The shepherdess, the strong, the emotionless. I don't think she's hairy, but you never know. (laughs) But Laban agrees, and Jacob says, all right, I'm going to serve seven years. And Jacob isn't necessarily wrong in his request, but culturally Laban is wrong in making that agreement. But the first lesson Jacob is learning here is that genuine love requires great sacrifice. Love requires great personal investment. Love requires hard work. He is learning to sacrifice, to work and not cheat someone. Learning to love someone more than himself and it's going to be painful. But it's love. Love makes us do some pretty crazy things. I know that firsthand because what it says is that those seven years were like a few days, right? He's just like, whatever, yeah, Rachel, I'll work. You can imagine, he could, I bet Laban could have asked him to do anything, right? And he was like, sure, no problem. Because it's love, driven by love. But it's still hard work. It goes on, the lessons get much harder from there. And the decision to love is going to even be more difficult to make. At the end of his seven years, 2,555 days, a wedding feast takes place. The feast ensues and the evening goes well, well into the dark. And Leah, not Rachel, is secretly brought to Jacob instead. More than likely, Jacob has been intoxicated. And like his father before him, he doesn't see very well at that moment. 
And ironically, just as Jacob disguised himself to deceive his father, Leah has likely disguised herself to deceive Jacob. Leah is more like Jacob than he realizes. They're very similar. Going along with the deception according to their parents' desire. You ever notice how difficult it is to love people that are just like you? I wonder if that's part of it, where he sees in Leah himself. I know that as our children get older, we... We see different things. I kind of like that. And then your spouse is like, you know, that's just like you. Like, really? That's a tough lesson to learn. In the morning, though, the truth is revealed, and Jacob is understandably confused. Tradition had or held that uh, siblings would marry first, and families didn't want, um, you know, daughters, what they would call often spinsters, hanging out just draining the family and not really being helpful. They just wanted to marry him off. And a young uh, or younger or a attractive young woman um, would uh, often be married off to a very wealthy man. In fact, the objectification of women, I think, is a very ancient art. And Laban is a shrewd businessman. And not only does he want to marry off Leah because of, you know, Tradition, he also looks at Rachel's like, hmm, this could be a potential investment to increase my own wealth. Laban is, ain't a good guy, but neither is Jacob. Laban explains, oh, this is the tradition. This is tradition. And Jacob's got to be thinking, you couldn't tell me that seven years ago? Right? You couldn't, men- you couldn't mention that? So Jacob is upset about being deceived, but perhaps he's not as upset as you would think he should be. If you read it, he doesn't sound like just like raging angry. And I wonder if in a moment he's kind of thinking, wow, you know, the, the cheater's been cheated. That's his name. Name means cheat. The deceiver's been deceived. I wonder if he's been humbled a little bit because the Lord has given him some of his own medicine. The Bible teaches that we reap what we sow. And this is exactly what Jacob is experiencing. However, I think given enough time, we will see that what we sow by the grace of God ends up changing how we reap in the future. But what is noteworthy, I think, is that Jacob never brings up Leah's role in the deception. Not here and not anywhere else. It's never mentioned. And although he loves Rachel more, and it's stated many times, it's clear that he is loving to his first wife, even if just less. The work involved in establishing love is hard enough, but when you're wronged, that makes it much harder, doesn't it? especially by the one that you are supposed to love. Jacob would have what might feel like all kinds of justifiable sounding excuses to not love. You deceive me. This is not a valid marriage. I don't love her. I don't like her. Like all kinds of things. You deceive me too. Like, all kinds of reasons he could give that for us would go, yeah, that makes sense. You were told like you had a contract. You had this. But you know what? He doesn't make a single one. 
He never makes a single excuse. He doesn't try to get out of the marriage at any time. Laban offers him Rachel as long he'll work another seven years, and they agree. Pretty trusting, considering what had happened. But this time, there's no mention of those seven years feeling like a few days. And as much as he may have been in love with Rachel, there was still seven years where he was under contract and worked being married to a woman that he never agreed to marry. Having to love a woman that had wronged him. As I said, it says that he loves Rachel more than Leah, but it doesn't mean that he did not love Leah. I think Jacob is beginning to understand not only that true love requires work, but catch this. It also involves a commitment to someone even when you've been wronged by that someone. That's hard. It's it's almost easy to love someone that has done nothing to you. But we know, anybody knows, when you get into a marriage, you hurt each other. Newsflash, you hurt each other. And that's when your commitment and your true kind of understanding of what love is is fleshed out. Love is hard, and it's even harder when you're wronged by the person that you are supposed to be loving. I love, actually I don't. I'm an English teacher, I was, and I really don't like Shakespeare. There's a couple things of Shakespeare that I like. One is a sonnet. Sonnet 116, at the end of it, it's a sonnet on love. It says this, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds. Love is not love that changes when it finds change. Love is not love when it decides to walk away when wronged. Jacob has all kinds of valid, it seems like, reasons to walk away, but he learns that the kind of love we're talking about is a love that is, yes, hard work, but also kind of love that sticks when you're wronged, when you're hurt. Gets better. With each of these wives, Rachel and Leah, come two servants, Billa and Zilpah. It's from these four women and this one man that the 12 tribes of Israel will come, the most important blended family in the history of the world. But throughout this story, Jacob is not the only one that God is going to be disciplining and learning how to love. Ironically, Leah, who deceived Jacob in the same way that Jacob had deceived his own father, learns a lot. Interestingly enough, she masqueraded herself. She deceived Jacob and obtained what she wanted most. I wanted to be married so bad. So bad that she sinned to get it. She in many ways, in the same way Jacob did, stole the blessing away from her sister. But ultimately, she didn't get what she wanted. Because what did she really want? Love. And she didn't get that. But she got the marriage, she got the wedding. In fact, her 
sinful deception likely made her even a little more ugly and unlovable to Jacob. Harder for him to love. She learned the high cost of her deception, who after seven years of being the woman of the house, was likely treated for the next seven at least as a second-class citizen and a servant. Because he loved Rachel more. He had eyes for Rachel more. We've got to think about Leah, the, the difficulty of that. Yeah, she, she screwed up, and it's easy for us to go, well, you put yourself in that situation. We go, man, how difficult is it to be in a relationship to love someone when they're not loving? How, how does someone continue to love in, in a covenant marriage, in a covenant relationship, that when, it, when it's not reciprocated? How does someone remain committed in a relationship when all that they do, all that they love, all that they give doesn't ever seem to produce any fruit or change? When it's all one-sided? That's hard. We've got to have a heart for Leah here because, you know, yeah, she screwed up. But every single character in the Bible screws up. Minus one. How do you love when there's no fruitfulness, when there's no reciprocity? How do you do that? Well, maybe fruitfulness and reciprocity aren't supposed to be the primary goals. Maybe that's not supposed to be the primary goal of our commitments in our relationships. Even though Jacob loves Rachel more than, I mean, yes, loves Rachel more than Leah, we read that God is watching this whole time and he sees that Leah is hated and that's like, wow, he hates her. While Jacob didn't literally hate Leah, it's a comparative statement. The greatness of his love for Rachel in comparison to his love for Leah probably felt and looked like hate. But by grace, God decides to open up the womb of Leah and Rachel's remains closed. And Leah starts to pop out kids. Out of the 12, she'll end up having six. But she begins to have babies and she is hopeful that as God blesses her, the affection of her husband is going to change. And you start to get a glimpse into Leah's heart. Essentially, she endures being unloved. She endures that situation where I'm in this relationship, I'm loving, this is one-sided, I'm doing everything, nothing's changed, out of a hope that it will change. That, that she might be able to do something or something might happen to her that, that will change how Jacob feels about her. That's where her hope is. That's what her drive is. And so the names of her children as they begin to be born reveal her deepest desires. First one, Reuben. Which again, these words either sound like or translated literally to these phrases here that God has seen. God has seen that, that I'm hated. God has seen that I'm not loved as much as her. God's seen that I'm being treated poorly, that I'm doing everything. He's doing nothing. Now that I have a kid, he will love me. That's, her, that's what she thinks. I've got Reuben. Now he'll love me. Look at Jacob. I've got a baby for you. 
And does he? No. She has a second son named Simeon. Now God has heard me, heard my cries, heard my tears, heard my prayers, heard me. Now my husband's going to stop hating me. He's going to stop looking at me with disdain. He's going to start paying attention to me. He'll stop being indifferent to me. And does he? No. I got, I got, I got two babies. You got two babies. Surely you love me now. Look what I'm giving to you. And he gives nothing in return. She has a third child, Levi. And again, you see her heart. You see her true desire. What does she really want? I want love from my husband. Levi, who means attached. Now this time, my husband's going to be attached to me. He's going to grab onto me. He's going to hold me. He's going to love me. And he does not. Three children, right? Got three kids. And my husband's love for me has not changed. The very thing I've been hoping for, the very thing I've been working for, I've been giving, I've been doing everything. I'm giving your children, I'm giving you affection, I'm saying nice things, I'm doing all these things, and you're not changing at all. How do you endure a relationship like that? How do you survive a relationship like that? And we see a change in Leah. See, Leah desired to be loved so badly that she sought to find that love in the wrong place. No matter how well she took care of the house, no matter how many kids she gave, no matter how beautiful she made herself, Jacob did not love her in the way that she needed. And at times it seems that she began to realize that perfect love can only be found in one place. Namely, God. In other words, there is a depth of love and approval that God alone can satisfy. Truly, even a loving Jacob would never satisfy the longings of her soul. The love of any and every earthly spouse, any and every earthly relationship will always fall short. Even the best ones. They will always fall short. They will always disappoint. They will always fail to satisfy that deep need for love that we all have. And Leah finally begins to realize that. See, we are designed for relationship. Men and women alike work hard to escape this kind of loneliness that we feel and they run things like marriage to try and satisfy that. And I think marriage is a beautifully wonderful thing, gift from God. But by God's grace, what we see with Leah, who had put all kinds of hope in the relationship, find relief in God's perfect embrace. And Leah's naming of her fourth son reveals a change in her heart. She names him Judah, which means praise. No mention of Jacob. No mention of her husband. She says, this time, I will praise the Lord. My focus has shifted. The source of my need has shifted. With this last name, Leah gives us a glimpse of what I believe is true love. 
You see, Jacob and, and really all of us are on this journey from, from selfishness to selflessness. This journey from, I know how to love myself, how do I love others? And really, love is, yes, a transformation from selfishness to selflessness, but it's not a love primarily for self-benefit or for the benefit of others. Genuine love should always be driven by the glory of God. Because that is the only kind of love that can't fail. It's not based on the reaction or the reciprocity or the failure or success of any other person, but on the faithfulness and love of a God who never fails. God desires all of us to learn that kind of love, and He will take us on whatever journey, through whatever relationships, to teach us just that. Through discipline in difficult relationships, of which we all have, God graciously conforms us to the image of His Son so that we will learn to love like Him. That's the goal. The goal isn't your happiness, though I think your joy is rooted in loving like Him. But it's like the renovation of an old home, right? This process is always very messy. It always takes longer, and it costs more than we ever expect as we transform from the old into the new. Anyone can love when it's easy. Anyone can love when you're not wronged by the someone that you love. Anyone can love when it's reciprocated. Look it, I do this and you are happy and you love me back. Anyone can do that. But the sin in us tempts us to give up when it's hard and to give up when we're hurt or to even hurt when we're hurt or to flee when we don't see fruitfulness. Learning to love is difficult. And so, I would suggest this for all of us here. For those of us in relationships, whether it be marital relationships, whether it be parenting relationships, whether it be work relationships, friendships, if you're in a relationship right now that requires a lot of hard work, a commitment requires a lot of hard work. Maybe a relationship or a commitment where you are wronged often. Maybe a relationship where you feel as if you're doing all the work, you're doing everything right, you are giving, you are sacrificing, but you are not being loved and nothing's changing. Dare I say that that could be God's discipline in your life. Not God's punishment. God's discipline of your life leading you to learn the love of Christ. He wants us, I believe, to lift our eyes from a self-love focus because that's usually how we... What, I'm not benefiting this. This hurts. I don't like this. This isn't a blessing to me. Nothing's changing for me. He wants to lift our eyes from that self-focus and look at the selflessness of that. And only when you see how God has loved us in Christ, right? The son of Judah. The descendant of Judah. One whose name means praise. 
Only when you see how God has loved us in Christ will you be able to love like Christ, especially when it's hard, especially when you're wronged, and especially when you feel perpetually unloved. Consider what the Gospel teaches us about the nature of God's love for us in Romans chapter 5. It says in verse 6, for a while we were still weak. Weak. Isn't that an interesting word to use? The weakness of Leah's eyes. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the most wonderful, loving, awesome people. He could, no, for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows what? His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, God loved us enough to kill His Son. While we were sinners, while we were unlovable, while we were ugly and broken and nasty people, Jesus worked hard. He shed His blood for us. More than that, He worked hard for those He knew were unlovable. Those who had wronged Him. To the extent where He forgave those who were killing Him as He was dying. Forgive them, you know not what they do. Those who were incapable in themselves of reciprocating such love. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus endured the cross. He did the hard work as He was being wronged, knowing that He was not going to be loved in the way that He was loving those He died for. He endured the cross. Why? For the joy set before Him. And what was that joy? According to Isaiah, 53, the satisfaction of knowing that he had saved his bride that he loved from sin. And for those who are in Christ, you're his bride. You're the bride he worked so hard for. You're the bride who he loved when he was wronged by us. You're the bride to whom he shed his blood and sacrificed everything he had to sacrifice. And only when we see how God has loved us in Christ will be able to give when you're not given to, to stand even when you're struck down, to love even when you're not loved back, just as Christ did for you. In fact, when you know that kind of love, the Bible says that that love begins to control you. More than that, it empowers you to live not for yourself and not even to live for others primarily, but for Him who is worthy of praise. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us, and we'll end with that. It says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. In other words, I have seen this. I understand the way God has loved me and that changes the way I will love. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died. And that He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. That's what Jacob is learning. 
That was Leah's learning, and that's what we're learning. And the Lord will take us down whatever pathway and in, through and in any relationships necessary to shape us into a people who loves, not just as more loving, who loves like Jesus has loved us. And as you come forward this morning, for those who are in Christ, if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, if you look at the cross and see, man, I am uglier and more unlovable and more sinful than I'll ever know or admit, but I am more loved than I could possibly imagine. If you believe that, then you come forward and you partake of the blood and the bread and you, you're reminded of Jesus' love, but also reminded that it's not just, he didn't just come so that we would sit and enjoy the love we have from Him, but that we would go and love likewise. And we would tell others about His love. And we would treat others in the same way. It's hard. It is not easy. It is painful. If you're going to love like Jesus, you're likely going to suffer like Jesus. And that's why most of us fall short of that. See how Jesus loved you. See how Jesus suffered to you so that you would love in the way that He loved you. Let's pray.